Welcome to God is Open. I'm your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we're going to be going over God's repentance in the Bible. Nakam. That's the Hebrew word for repentance. We're not going to go over every time that God actually does repent, but every time that this word nakam is used in conjunction with God for God's repentance. And this repentance is not like repenting of sins. What we think of as repentance, it's God changing his mind, doing something different. And that's what the context will show. But first of all, before we get started, I'm going to play a clip from what I recorded with my father, who is an expert at Hebrew, and him just talking just a little bit about this word. The original idea was to do the whole podcast with him, but we just really didn't have time over the holiday break to do so. But we do got some clips, and we'll play that for you now. The primary word about changing one's mind is the Hebrew nakam. And akam, when it's used with the binyan in the niffle, it means repent. Some 36 to 38 times in the Old Testament, God is said to repent or to change his mind. To change one's mind, there has to be an original statement or action by God. Then God will admit verbally that he's going to change his mind and then he institutes an action that is contrary or opposed to the first situation. So you have three elements of repent. You have the action, you have God's verbal statement on repentance, then you have the actions that negate the original action that God was taking or that was happening. This is the theological word book of the Old Testament. Uh, by Harris Archer and Walt Key. This is what they have to say about repent. The origin of the word seems to reflect the idea of breathing deeply, hence the physical display of one's feelings, usually sorrow, compassion, or comfort. The King James Version translates the niffle of Nakam repent 38 times. The majority of these instances refer to God's repentance, not man's. Let's uh, quickly explain what the niffle is. The uh, Hebrew is divided into seven binyans. They're like, uh, if you, you're familiar with English or Greek, the verb system is, is built upon the conjugation, usually refers to present, past, etc., etc. But the Hebrew also has elements of present and past, but they divide, uh, they don't divide up the same way as the, the Indonesian or Ger- Germanic languages do. They divide into seven binyan, which they call. And of these seven binyan, the word nakam is used in the niffle and in the peel. When it's used in the niffle, it usually means repent. When it is used in the peel, it means to comfort. Harris, Archer, and Waltke admit that when scriptures, they say scriptures inform us that God repents, he relents or changes his dealings with man according to his sovereign purposes. However, they have a caveat. They are Calvinists, so they don't believe that God actually repents, even though the Bible says that. They admit the Bible says that. But they go through their theology, and they try to contradict what the Old Testament says and put their own meaning on it. They go on. On the surface, such language seems inconsistent, if not contradictory, with certain passages which affirm God's immutability. 
God is not a man that he should repent, for Samuel 15:29. They say when God, when Nakam is used of God, the expression is anthropopathetic, and there is ultimate tension. From man's limited earthly finite perspective, it only appears that God's purposes have changed. So they admit the meaning of the word. They admit that when it's used of God, that on the surface, or on when you read it, when you have a, just a normal understanding of what God is saying, that it means that God changes his mind. However, because of their theological bias, because of what they think 1 Samuel 15:29 says, and we know that twice in fifth, chapter 15, God is said to have changed his mind, and only once does it say God does not change his mind. They, are, they selectively use that to negate the other apparent 36 to 38 times in the Old Testament where God is said to repent or to change his mind. When the Masoretic text of the Old Testament was written, vowels were added, and the Masoretic authors, they took and they put repent in the niffle quite often when referring to God. And this makes sense because when you look at the context of these instances, God is actually repenting of stuff that he said he would do or that he was thinking of doing. There's some change in God's actions, behaviors, thoughts, processes. So it makes sense that it is repentant in these instances. And we're going to start with, uh, probably we're going to go in chronological order in the Bible and start with Genesis 6.6. 6. The context of Genesis 6 is that God has made human beings. Human beings have become wicked. God peers down from heaven, sees that they have become wicked, and then God repents making man. So what is God repenting of? He's repenting of his own action in making man. And what is his reconciling action? It's destroying all of mankind, all plants, all animals, even the terrain on earth. This is a global undoing of God's creation. So let's read the text real quick. It says, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. So we notice in the text that repentance of God is attributed not only to God's words about himself, but also the narrator's words about God. In Bible Reading 101, the narrator is omniscient. So whatever the narrator says is true. So when Calvinists, they turn to words by human beings and quote people, that, that's not as authoritative as the author, and it's especially not as authoritative as God's own words about himself. The supporting action is pretty straightforward as well. So this repentance in God, that's what motivates the action occurring. God sees man, he regrets that he made man, and then he destroys all of mankind. And it's very important to note that this repentance in God, it's not coupled with anger. God's not angry at mankind. Instead, the text portrays God as being sorrowful. God is interacting with his newfound creation. And that creation has not turned out how he expected it to turn out. God is sad, and God blames himself, his own actions, and he undoes his own actions. It's not punishment. It's not anger. It's sadness over one's actions being written here. The next verse I'm going to go over is Exodus 13:17, And this is just an example of this word applied to mankind. 
Just showing the audience that, yes, this word is applied to mankind, showing repentance. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although it was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So this verse is good on all sorts of levels. One such level is that God's taking precautions in case the people might do something. He says, I'm going to lead them a different way just in case that these people want to return to Egypt. And the text says, lest the people change their minds, Nakam, when they see war and return to Egypt. So the people see the war, they repent of following God, and then they return to Egypt. You got the initial conditions, you got the repentance, and then you got the change in action. And this is to man. So this word does mean repent. In Exodus 32, we have the word two more times. Genesis 6 had the word twice. In Exodus 32, we have a podcast on that. And that's a very important podcast that everyone should listen to if they have not heard it yet. But in Exodus 32, God is with Moses on Mount Sinai. And God looks down and he sees that Israel is misbehaving. They are rejecting him. And he's, he gets becomes incredibly angry, very furious. And he says, Moses, get away from me because I am angry. I'm just going to kill all of Israel. And Moses, instead of saying, oh, God, you are omniscient of all future events, and I'll just go my way, and you know what's best, he goes into a cascading list of arguments why God should not destroy Israel. And this is one that God actually takes. Moses says, why should the Egyptians say, this is verse 12, with evil intent did he bring them out, God bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger and relent of this disaster against your people. This is the ESV, and they like to put in a calm and say relent, but it's really repent. So literally, Moses' argument is, God, if you would just kill everyone right here, all the pagan nations will see what you did, and they'll think you're just some sort of death cult god. You lead your people into the wilderness, and you just kill them all, and then they'll think, Yahweh is this terrible, terrible God. Moses says, repent of this disaster against your people. And then Exodus 32, 14, and the Lord relented, which is repented, from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. The text has God proclaiming against Israel, saying he's going to destroy them. It has Moses responding in turn, arguing as if God is going to destroy them and asking God to change his mind, then the text has God changing his mind and not destroying Israel as he said he would do. The next time that Nakam is used of God is found in Numbers 23, 19. And this is in a quote by a false prophet, Balaam. Balaam is on his way to prophesy against Israel. He's being paid to do so, but God doesn't want this guy prophesying against Israel, especially not in the name of Yahweh. So he stops him, he takes over the donkey, and he makes the donkey speak to Balaam and convince Balaam to prophesy for God rather against God. And here's the context, verse 8, How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? Verse 19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Behold, I received a command to bless, and he is blessed. I cannot revoke it. So what Balaam is saying is that not that God's immutable and can't change in any sense, and his essence 
can never you know alter in any slight way. What he's saying is that God's not going to change his mind about blessing his holy people. He's not going to be bought off with money. He's not going to curse Israel, his beloved, his chosen, who he's blessed. That's the meaning. And Calvinists want to take this verse out of context, make it about total immutability, and then this trumps everything else in the Bible. Everything else in the Bible is secondary to this statement by a false prophet, a person who's not the narrator, who's not God, but this is negative theology in their minds. This is metaphysics, and it trumps everything else in the Bible. Anything else we read has to be thought of in light of this statement. It's a completely backwards reading of the Bible. And notice, notice also what the ESV translators do here. They put Nakam and they translate it, change his mind. But they're not going to put that in the context of when God's actually changing his mind, they're not going to translate it like that. Because we have biased translators. People who aren't faithful to the text, they're not consistent in their translation. And I understand translation is tedious and different people do different sections but just, just the way that they translate some of these open theistic ideas, these open theistic verses, it's systematically like this. The next instance we're going to be covering is Deuteronomy 32, 36. And the word here, nakam, it is the exact same word that we find in our numbers reference. You know, by Balaam, which the ESV translators translate, change his mind. And here's the funny thing. Remember when we started out this podcast and it's the nifal that is where the word means repentance. But in Numbers and in this Deuteronomy text, it is not in the nifal. It is in the hithpa, which is usually translated having compassion and comforting and easing oneself. Only, only in this Numbers 23.19 is it translated to change one's mind. Translator biased anyone? Again, this is not the niffle. This is not about changing his mind. It's about him having compassion. And it's the same word usage that we find in Numbers, which is hilarious. The context is very interesting, too, because like in Exodus 32, God says he's going to be refraining from actions due to how foreign pagan people will take the actions. He says, I'm not going to destroy you completely because the pagans will say, you know, our gods did this. So he says, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to give that uh, to them so that they could boast about that. So God is really curtailing his actions due to PR issues. Next, we're going to talk about Judges 2.18. This is a very interesting passage, which this, this represents the cycle of rebellion and God's salvation as found in Judges, where, you know, the people would rebel against God. God would punish them. And then the people would be oppressed and God would change his mind. He would repent and decide to save them because of all their pity and groaning. And God would raise up a judge. The judge would save them. But then the people would fall back into their transgressions. And Judges 2, the end part of this chapter, just describes this cycle. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge. And he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity, that's the repentance, by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or stubborn ways. We kind of get the feeling behind what's being communicated here that God's 
changing his mind, God showing mercy is very futile because it just does not work. And so God's salvations are failing because the people just become more and more wicked. Judges 2.20, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as our fathers did or not. And so God changes his mind in the context of God's continuous cycle of repentance, of punishment. And in this text, you know, God punishes and then repents of his punishment when he feels sorry for his people. But then the cycle continues so much so that God gets super angry. And he says, uh, enough with this. I'm tired of just saving you guys just so that you will rebel again. No more. No more. And here's the funny thing. God declares that he's not going to save them anymore. But then what happens, and this is predictable due to us knowing God's character, that God again sees Israel's repentance, their sorrow, their groaning. And again, in spite of what he said, that he will no longer save them and he'll just let them duke it out with the enemy people. He repents of that statement and saves them again and again and again. And this is the history of Israel. God gets incredibly frustrated and declares against them, declares in absolute terms, but changes his mind when they repent, when they beg for mercy. 1 Samuel 15 is our next text in which this repentance is ascribed to God. And this repentance is used of God three times in this chapter. Verse 11 is God saying to Samuel that he repents of making God king. Then we have verse 29 in which Samuel saying to Saul that God's not a man that he should repent. And then we have verse 35 in which the narrator says that God repents. And Calvinists, they love the text in which Samuel is saying to Saul that God's not a man that he should lie, nor son of man that he should repent. Recall back to the Numbers verse. Recall back to Balaam talking. These statements are very similar. And in context, they have an actual point that meets the context. God has repented of making Saul king. Saul says, hey, I repent. In turn, God should repent and make me king again. And Samuel says that God's not a man he should repent. He's not saying God's not a man that he should ever repent in any context and he's immutable and his essence is immutable. He's just saying to Saul that God has revoked the kingdom from you. He's not going to change his mind. He's not a man that you're just going to convince him to give it back to you. This is not neglecting God's statement about himself in the text and the narrator's statement about God in the text. It's not like this statement by Samuel is a metaphysical concept that overrides everything else in the text, all the events in the text as they're described in the text, all the words attributed to God by himself and the narrator. It's not like that's what's going on in this text. But Calvinists like to read the Bible backwards. Uh, what they want is proof text. What they want is to read their theology into text because they're desperate for ideas and concepts of Calvinism and negative theology. They're desperate for proof text in the Bible because they're just there's just no proof texts. They don't exist. And so they have to resort 
to quoting human beings out of context. And we have an entire podcast on 1 Samuel 15, which I go over an event in which a Calvinist denies this straightforward reading, and his audience is shocked at just the blatant dishonesty in how Calvinists treat 1 Samuel 15. The next event we're going to talk about is in 2 Samuel 24, and David has went and numbered the people, and this makes God angry for some reason. Maybe David's not relying on God, and God wants David to follow him. And so God offers David all sorts of punishments. And David doesn't want to take a punishment that involves human retribution, human punishment. He wants one that's in God's hands because he knows God's character, that God is prone to showing mercy, to repenting. And he says, Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall in the hand of man. So the Lord sent pestilence on Israel from morning until the appointed time, and there died of the people of Dan to the Bathsheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand towards Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented, this is the repented, from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough, now stay your hand. David knows God's character. David knows that God's a God who changes his mind. And that's an attribute attributed to God with the same word, repent, by both Jonah and Joel. We're going to read the Joel reference real quick. And this is like a didactic text. You know, Calvinists say, oh, what we do is we take the didactic text and that interprets the rest, the statements about who God is. And then we take the narratives and interpret that in the light. They do that for everything except for repentance. Because God is said in texts that just describe his character that he repents. Joel 2.13, Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he repents, this is repents, over disaster. And King David knows this. That's why King David chooses a punishment by God's own hand, because he knows God is a God to change his mind. And this reference is being quoted by Jonah in the context of Jonah. Let's quickly turn to that example. So we get to Jonah, and Jonah is sent to the Ninevites, who are an incredibly wicked people. And he preaches that God is going to kill them all. He's going to destroy the entire city. And miraculously, miraculously, the entire nation repents. And this is their reasoning. They say, who knows, God may turn and relent, which is repent, from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. They didn't know. That's not part of the teaching. They thought God was going to kill them all. And they thought maybe, perhaps, the way to deal with this is to repent of their wickedness. And in turn, God's going to repent of his judgment. When God saw what they did, how they turned away from their evil, God repented of the disaster he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So God sees their change in actions, and God, in turn, repents of what he said he would do. This is very clearly a repentance text. God is changing his mind in response to seeing people change their ways. James White, in one of the open theist debates, he's like, you guys always turn to these verses. Yeah, because this is very, very clear what's going on here. And it takes someone who is incredibly bad at reading in order to interpret this in a different way than God is changing his mind about what he said he is going to do, what he thought he was going to do. And let's listen to what Jonah says about this. And Jonah's bitter, Jonah's angry, and Jonah doesn't like God at this point. 
It says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And this is what he says. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O God, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country, that this is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish? For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and repenting from disaster. Jonah says, I know it's in your character that you just change your mind about what you said you're going to do. So why am I here? Why am I preaching to your enemies? And why are you sparing these evil people? What is my purpose here? And what am I doing? And in the text, Jonah never comes around. He never comes to God's opinions. And God gives him the object lesson, but there's no change in Jonah's character by the end of this text. He remains bitter and angry at God because he knows that God changes his mind. He doesn't like it. So backtracking so we could get back on course, 1 Chronicles 21.15. This is a parallel text, the David incidents, which we have already gone over. Then we could skip forward to the Psalms. Psalms 90.13, return, O Lord, how long, and have pity on your servants. This is the repentance here. Moses is basically saying, you're forsaking us, God. Please change your mind and come back and be with us. And so this is an appeal by Moses to get God to change his mind. Psalms 106 is recalling previous times. And many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, he, God, looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake he remembered his covenant and relented, repented, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. God sometimes hears people, just like Moses prays for, and God repents concerning them. Psalms 110, The Lord has sworn and will not repent. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is God saying that because I have sworn a promise, I'm not going to change my mind. You notice how the not changing his mind is connected to his sworn oath, which the normal reading of this, people would understand that God could change his mind, but God is sworn, so he's being, making extra sure, extra careful to fulfill this promise. Jeremiah 4.28, very similar concept. For this the earth shall mourn, and the heavens above be dark. For I have spoken, I have purposed, I have not repented, nor will I turn back. God is saying, you know, I promised to do this. I'm not going to change my mind. Jeremiah 15.6, this is God's exasperated cry. He says, you have rejected me, declares the Lord. You keep going backwards, so I have stretched out my hand against you and destroyed you. I am weary of repenting. And this is Jeremiah again, the same person who's writing the previous verse that we went over, same repentance that we're talking about. In one instance, he's saying, I'm not going to repent about this one thing. And in this verse, he's saying, you know, I've been repenting so much, I am weary of doing it. I don't want to repent anymore because it's so burdensome and tiring to me. Notice the parallel to Judges. Jeremiah 18 is our next text, and we have an entire podcast on this. And this is just God explaining how he operates. And he says, I react to changes. So I will not do what I said I was going to do. I will not do what I thought I was going to do if people change. It's very clear, and it's a hard concept to miss, that God not only says that he will not do what he thought he would do, but he'll not do what he said he would do. The text covers all its basis. It's really hard to just claim that this doesn't mean what it is saying. Jeremiah 20.16 is next. And this is just Jeremiah just throwing out an offhanded comment about these cities that God did not repent over. He says, let that man, the man who's bringing news of a birth of a child to his father, 
He says, let not that man be like the cities that the Lord overthrew without pity. This is great. Jeremiah 26.2, Thus says the Lord, Stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah that come to worship in the house of the Lord, all the words that I command you to speak to them, and do not hold back a word. It may be that they will listen, and everyone will turn from his evil way, that I may repent of the disaster that I intend to do them because of their evil deeds. God's saying, Let's preach to these guys because they just might, maybe they might, they might repent, and then I will repent of what I plan on doing. Jeremiah repeats this message to the people. Now therefore amend your ways and your deeds and obey the voice of your Lord your God, and the Lord will repent of the disaster that he pronounced against you, verse 16. Then jumping ahead, the people in verse 19 recall that God has repented in the past. Jeremiah 42.9, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to whom you sent me to present your plea for mercy before him, if you will remain in this land, then I will build you up and I will not pull you down. I will plant you and I will not pluck you up, for I repent of the disaster that I did to you. That's another mercy text. Let's contrast that to Ezekiel 24. And this is a very interesting text as well on a lot of levels. On account of your unclean lewdness, because I would have cleansed you and you were not cleansed from your uncleanness, you shall not be cleansed anymore till I have satisfied my fury on you. I am the Lord. I have spoken it. It shall come to pass. I will do it. I will not go back. I will not spare. I will not relent. According to your ways, your deeds, you will be judged, declares the Lord God. God is saying, absolutely not am I going to repent in this instance because, because you would not accept my correction. A very similar verse in Zechariah 8.14, Thus says the Lord God of hosts, As I purpose to bring disaster to you, when your fathers provoked me to wrath, I did not repent, says the Lord of hosts. So God's pointing out specific instances in the past in which he did not repent. Because the people were of the opinion that God repents all the time, and so God's not going to follow through on some of his claims. In order to counter this, God points to specific instances in the past in which he did not repent and he did not show mercy so that there is actual threat to the inhabitants. The last reference we're going to go over is in Amos, Amos 7. Amos has shown various visions of God's attempts to destroy Israel. God starts forming locusts. Amos intervenes and says, please forgive. God repents. God starts forming fire. Amos intervenes. God repents and says, this shall not be. Even though God had started building locusts, God had started conjuring fire, God repents of his actions. But then there's a third thing. God shows Amos a vision of a plumb line and says, Israel is going to be destroyed. It's going to be put to the sword and people are going to be slaughtered. And Amos does not intervene. God does not repent. And so when John Calvin says that these previous repentances was just God showing his mercy, biding his time in case the people repent, that's very duplicitous in what he thinks God is like. Like God could see the future, see that the people will not repent, and then repents of doing stuff that he planned on doing and started to form. He repents of that for what? Knowing full well that the people never do repent and God does eventually punish them. And listen to this final punishment. And if I was the people, maybe I would have picked the locusts if I could like pick one of the three. 
He says, your wife shall be a prostitute in the city and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword. Your land shall be divided up from, with a measuring line and you yourself shall die in an unclean land and Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. So this is not like the least harsh of all the punishments even. This is, this is pretty desolate description of what's going to happen. And it just doesn't make sense that God's repenting of these other things for other reasons rather than what Amos is actually saying is God is legitimately hoping that these people repent and calling back these pronouncements against them, the things that he plans on doing to see if they repent, but it's too much. The people don't repent. And God becomes angry and declares against them, and there's no stopping him this time. This podcast went over time, but that's okay because it's fairly comprehensive of going through every instance that the word Nakam is applied to God, the context of those events, what's happening in context. You know, what are the stories about? How is God repenting in those instances? And the Calvinistic claim that this is not true repentance is not borne out by the text in which we see that pattern where God's planning on doing something, says he's going to do something, starts doing something, repents, and then reverses that action. And this is even actions that he had planned on doing, that he had started doing, he reverses. As Jeremiah says, God plans on doing something, God thinks he's going to do something, but then reverses when the people change their ways. When he, he watches them, when he observes them change their ways, then he knows not to do what he thought to do, and what he said he was going to do. If you have any comments or questions on today's podcast, feel free to put that on the God is Open webpage or start a thread on the God is Open Companion Facebook page. Thank you for listening.